Pete, I tell you that because Jay is not here, Pastor Jay is not with us this morning. Well, it's lovely to be with you this morning, it's always great to be with you in fact, and um, we're in our, um, our series called Invisible Made Visible, and we're going to continue this morning, and uh, this one this morning is called King of Kings, the topic is King of Kings. So, Jay gave me this topic, he said, I can make jokes about Jay because he's not in the room, don't tell me. He said, because I was brought up living under a king. I'm British, you understand. So, life in the old countries may not quite be what it seems it is from the US. We Brits have a secret. I'm really to confuse foreigners, but I'm going to let you in on it. Don't tell anybody that I told you, okay? All right. Um... We call it the United Kingdom because it's neither united nor a kingdom. (laughs) You see, it's all in the irony, isn't it? Tricky stuff. It's neither united nor a kingdom. You'd be closer if you called it the disunited queendom. (laughs) Doesn't have the same ring, no. There you go. Irony is very important in the UK, and some people tell me that, you know, you folks don't don't follow it quite the same way. But there you go. So I'm going to summon all the blue blood I have in my veins, which is very, very, very little, (coughs) and uh, try to talk from strength about living with a king. So I was thinking this week about what it's like living under the queen. Um, or Parliament for a Brit. And I was wondering, what is one of the most obvious signs or consequences that Brits live in a kingdom or queendom? Um, My answer isn't very encouraging. The most obvious thought I had was taxes. Taxes. So you complain about the IRS, but you need to be thankful you're not a subject, you're not subject to Her Majesty's Inland Revenue Service. Um, In the US here, at least you get to choose your tax withholding. Not so in the UK. The tax man tells you what your withholding will be, and he has the power to change it without you agreeing, (laughs) and frequently does. And then you have to go and call him and argue back that it's unfair and unreasonable, and if you're lucky, he might change it. It's all very dictatorial and bureaucratic, horrible. I remember one occasion when I worked, uh, when I was last working in England, um, when the tax office decided that they were going to change the tax code 
the withholding code of all the employees in the organization because they thought they had um, found an error in the way a medical benefit was being reported. So they changed everybody's code. And then the HR group finally got the tax office to agree that that was wrong, that they did it wrong. But the tax office refused to change it back unless every single employee called them individually and requested it. Doesn't that sound fun? <laughs> Such is the tax office. So at least this morning we're going to rejoice because the King of Kings does not have a tax man. Right? <laughs> Hallelujah. Or at least if he has a tax man, he hasn't caught up with me yet. Um, you know, living under authority is, is uh, something in the UK, but of course it's, uh, it's very similar here and, and in most, uh, most other Western countries at least. So, let's think in a different direction for a few moments. Jesus. If I tell you to think about Jesus, what's the first picture that comes into your mind? Does a picture come in? The cross, okay. A baby, good. The one that, um, that I recall that often pokes up is this one, called The Light of the World. It's, uh, it's a William Holman Hunt painting that uh, used to appear a lot, doesn't appear much now, of, of Jesus. But is it any kind of a representation? We don't know, but often our minds go to that type of thing. We, we, we perhaps see a, a bearded figure or a figure in a robe and sandals in, in, our, in our minds. Or as you say, the baby that was sitting on this straw, I suppose. Yeah. So our series, Invisible Made Visible, has majored on... Jesus showing us what God is like. But when we think about the way Jesus is, we tend, I think, to lean to viewing Jesus as a man. That's good because, you know, he was a man partly to demonstrate to us what God was like. But we see him that way, and we can see him as a good man and a good prophet. Um, we relate to him because of that. We relate to the attributes of God because they are seen in a man. We can see them in a man. We can see compassion, faithfulness, justice, mercy, forgiveness, wisdom, holiness. <laughs> Somebody help. But my concern is that that only gives us a part of the true picture and I want this morning to try and think about this a little differently. So for a moment, I want you to think, I want you to kind of be in the shoes of John, the, uh, the disciple. And think of this from, from John's perspective for a moment. John, the disciple, was with Jesus from the time Jesus started his ministry. He and his brother James were partners uh, when Simon Peter... Um, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, you remember, and the, the boat was filled with fish and, and that episode, and, and they were around at that time. And then 
Jesus called John and James's brother directly. And in Matthew's Gospel, it uh, gives us that account. It says, and going on there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. But who was John following at that time? What caused him to drop his livelihood and to follow Jesus? I think at that time John was following a man. He saw a man who was, who we considered a rabbi, their rabbi, a religious teacher, a teacher with potential. And he followed him. He followed him for perhaps three years. He walked with him. Every day he ate with him, he lodged with him, probably knew his parents uh, and childhood. He saw his joys, his excitements, his anguish, his tears. Really nothing that Jesus did would have passed John by. John was his close friend. He was the closest with Peter and James, and he went all the way to the end. He was sitting beside Jesus at the Last Supper and witnessed the betrayal. He saw the authorities take Jesus, sentence him to death, and even without Jesus raising really a, a defense. This is what John saw. He was uh, near the cross with Mary, Jesus' mother, when Jesus... Uh, and Jesus put his mother into John's care. He said, uh, it says when, in John, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby, that was John. He said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, John, he says, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So John was right in the thick of everything that was happening to Jesus. And I'm sure he learned a lot from this man. I'm sure that this man taught him incredible things. We know that happened. But then he wrote this, and uh, these would be familiar words to you, but this is the beginning of John's Gospel. He wrote this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Later, later on in the same chapter, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father for the grace and truth. This is John writing about his friend, about the man Jesus that he knew, that he followed to the cross. So we can easily slip, I think, into, into feeling that Jesus is the example we follow. And I want to just make sure that we challenge that this morning because you cannot be a Christian and just believe that. You cannot be a Christian and believe that Jesus was just an awesome man. 
And if you go there, you don't have a savior. And you're dead in your sins and you're separated from God. John lived with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry and he was the closest to him of any of the disciples. But he doesn't describe him as a good man. He starts his gospel with a conclusion which is profound. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. Yet he dwelt among us. That's incredible. So let's move on a bit. John um, also had a vision on the island of Patmos many years after he walked with Jesus. And it's recorded in the Bible in the book of Revelation, which we don't read so often because it's complicated. Um, at, the, at the end in Revelation, he records a vision of Jesus. He says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. This same Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is the word of God, it says in that verse. He is the word of God that John wrote about in his gospel. The word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is the Jesus that we follow, that John knew. King of kings and Lord of lords. And we'll get to it later, but we have to ask, do we truly believe that? Do we truly live in the light of it? John records, records another declaration of Jesus as king in uh, John chapter 12, and it's quite different. But in some ways I like this better because it declares the nature of the kingdom. Let's read that bit together. This is in John chapter 12. Um, verses 12 to 14, it's uh, page 747 if you want to use those Bibles uh, down there in front of you. I've got a few verses this morning to go through. Next day the crowd had come from the feast, that was the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to come for the feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. You know, Zechariah had written a few hundred years before. Um, in Zechariah 9.9, he wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, the daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gently and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. And this is that event. And Luke records some additional detail. He says this, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
the stones will cry. I don't think he was exaggerating. This was so reversed that even a stone would cry out to give recognition to the king, to the king, to the king who is humble and riding on a donkey. This is the culmination of God's story. This is his salvation. The king is coming, riding on a donkey. Jesus, the word of God. All things were made through him, and he is there, riding on a donkey. King of kings and Lord of lords, entering Jerusalem to face the cross. Hallelujah. That describes for me the nature of the kingdom. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment, but hallelujah. And there's a reason I'm reminding you of this, because this Jesus is king of kings, not because that was his place from the beginning, which it was, He was with God and he was God. But because he gave it all up and earned it again through humility and through obedience. The one whom the universe was created through gave it all up and came among us and earned his position all over again. So, I don't know how to put that, but I can say, um, he is double king of kings. How does that make sense? But he is double king of kings. He was king of kings. He gave up being in heaven, and he again became king of kings. He earned it twice. So, and he's unlike any other king, because he gave it all up. So uh, when I think about this, uh, mine automatically goes back to uh, the the words in uh, Philippians 2. So let's just read them together and remind ourselves of them again. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of that, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. King of kings and Lord of lords. That describes our king. Very, very different to earthly kings that we may have learned about in history books. 
He is the ultimate servant for his people. He gave up his position with the Father. He lived among us. He was persecuted and killed so he could open this way for us back to God, King of Kings. We can call him the Servant King. I don't think that was one of our topics that we, we got to, but uh, the Servant King. He reigns and we worship him. And we should worship him this morning. So, if we have a king, moving on a little, the king of kings, let's ask, where is his kingdom? What is his kingdom? Because certainly a king has a kingdom or has an entitlement to a kingdom. That's, uh, that's obvious. So what, what is that kingdom like? As a child... Uh, at Sunday school and at school, I think, I learned the Lord's Prayer. I'm not sure how that uh, works for, for folks nowadays. Um, the, the Lord's Prayer that was uh, most easily found in, in Matthew chapter 6 um, starts like this. This is Jesus speaking. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. But... Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, depends on which translation you read, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You've all prayed that many times, I'm sure. I certainly have. I prayed it many times as a child and I had really any idea what it meant. I think maybe my picture was of a cloud and the kind of a Disney castle looking thing on top of the cloud. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what, you know what, as a child, what, how do you understand uh, what the kingdom of God means? Your kingdom come. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll be asking God to, to, to end the world and replace it with his kingdom. Um, will we pleading with God to come and sort us all out? It, it just wasn't clear. And I think, um, you know, even after I accepted Jesus as my Savior, that wasn't clear to me. It's, it's, it's still a, a, it still can be a confusing concept. And, and thoughts like, well, if he's king, if he's really king, why doesn't he just come and conquer everything? And all these people and things that are happening that are not according to his will, just get rid of them. You know, it's done. Why? Well, what is going on? So kingdom of God, for me, it's one of those spiritual sounding things that is easy to say. We're not so easy to explain or to understand. One of the, I think, uh, one of the ministries of Jesus was to make the kingdom visible. And there are a lot of parables that uh, he wrote about the kingdom. We're going to touch on a few of them in a moment. My, um, my favorite kingdom parable is probably this one. It's found in Matthew chapter 13. 
kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in, a, in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And it's this revelation that God sows an innocuous thing that appears to be too insignificant to bother with, a tiny seed. It doesn't register on worldly scales as important or significant. Um, but it has power we don't understand. It has power we don't understand. And the seed grows and it doesn't stop growing and there's no stopping it. And by God's strength it becomes a, so it becomes a source of shelter and rest and life and salvation for many. And uh, many of you found a place to nestle in those branches. Most of you, I think. Nestling in the branches that is the kingdom of God that has grown to provide shelter and help. What is it? Many years ago, uh, I was listening to a, to a message and, and um, the, uh, the, the speaker said this. Very simply, his kingdom, God's kingdom, is where God rules and reigns. That's it. And I thought about that for a long time, but that transformed my thinking at that time. The kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns. We look for where his rule is truly acknowledged. Then you're looking at his kingdom. Not about dominion or right, but it's about submission to his will. The kingdom of God is where God truly rules and reigns. So we know that's true of heaven. We know that, uh, that, that that's the way heaven is. So the kingdom of God includes heaven. But he also rules in those that submit to his will and become his disciples. So his kingdom is in our midst. And not only in our midst, but there are others around us that we know of or even don't know of that, that have made a commitment to submit to him, to let the king of kings be their king. So they may be neighbors or workmates or schoolmates or teachers or teammates or guy traveling too slowly in the car in front of you. Um, all around us, there is his kingdom. His kingdom is where he rules and reigns. It's everywhere, and it's nowhere. It's hard to see. It's hard to touch. You can be aware of it. You can not be aware of it. You can be surprised by it. Sometimes you know his reign is really close. Sometimes it seems like he's far away. And you need the Spirit of God to truly see it. You know, it's like the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John re records also what Jesus said to Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. He said this, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everybody who is born of the Spirit. Because it's from God. It's beyond what we can understand and easily perceive. It's God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I pray you can all see the kingdom of God and that your knowledge and understanding of it grows and grows and grows, just like that tree. Now, for, I think for most of you here, the kingdom of God, it's evident in your lives. God has touched you. He's pulled you out of mess, probably, and sin and pain and rebellion. And he's established his rule in your lives. Not so he can command you, but so that you can enjoy the fruits of that kingdom. So that you will be his. You know, when I see God moving in people, and I see God moving in many of you, my heart leaps. My heart leaps. When I get to, to understand somebody's story, and see how God is moving in their lives, how his kingdom is established, my heart leaps. It's precious. It makes sense of life for me. Make way for the king. Make way for the king. I think as well, the kingdom of God can be more than just where his followers acknowledge his rule. Um, it can also be where he's active, where he's working, because the spirit blows, it's been clear to me, in places that we are not. He works in the lives of people that have not yet come under his reign. He gently but relentlessly draws people into obedience and commitment to him. He pursues them. Even when they won't acknowledge him, he pursues them. How much did God pursue you? How much do we need to be thankful to God that he never let us go, no matter how much we fought him? Yeah? And he moves us as well into situations where he's already working, if you had that experience, where perhaps at work you come and you think somebody starts to begin to talk to you about things and you, you're amazed at what God has been doing there where you were not. You're amazed at what God is doing. Um, you discover his kingdom and his movement in people around everywhere, and his kingdom is glorious. Jane encouraged us uh, last week um, to, to ask God, what next, Lord? What next, Lord? And then to listen. That's how we need to be. Kingdom of God is ethereal. It's, it's something you can't put your hand on. And you need God's Spirit to di discern it. But as we ask him, he shows us 
where he is going and where his kingdom is. Jesus said as well, he said this to Pilate, um, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is from another place. It wasn't about fighting with earthly authorities. It was about something very different. And Jesus did not say here, his kingdom is in another place, which is probably the way I read it when I was a child. He says it's from another place. It's all around us. We're not waiting for heaven. This world, though, is this world. And, you know, we live in a world where, where motivation is mostly self. Uh, we could call it, maybe we could call it the kingdom of self is, is where we live. This is the world where the kingdom is where I am king. What is going on around us in many times in the motivations of people is self-gratification. It's or some form of success or, or renown or recognition. And we live in that world, but we have to be careful that we don't subscribe to it. Our purpose is to serve the king of kings. A question that keeps coming back, and maybe it's on your mind, is why hasn't this all happened then? We talk about Jesus being king of kings. We talk about him having ultimate authority over all things. And we talk about his kingdom. But yet around us we see this other kingdom. We see this, the kingdom of self, as I just called it. So why doesn't he just come and establish his sovereign rule? Well, why are there any more choices? Why not just do it? Jesus told another parable. Again, it's in uh, Matthew 13, if you want to come and uh, look at them later. He said this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and a harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them and in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So interpretation of a parable is never certain unless Jesus explains it. But I think what he's saying is the world has to continue as it is for now. There has to be the wheat and the weeds. And both have to grow together. And only when the harvest has come, when the world comes to an end, can these two be separated. 
So we can say there are two kingdoms now. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And the two exist in this world as we live. And they will do until he comes. We belong, though, in only one. We must always be careful that we're only in that one. So what is our responsibility? Jesus told us to pray and ask, Thy kingdom come. We read that in the Lord's Prayer. He also instructed us to seek his kingdom, to look for his kingdom, to yearn for his kingdom. So I want to finish with a a few points um, on what it might mean to be in that kingdom and to be a subject of the king. I said subject. You, you guys are, you wouldn't call yourself American subjects, you'd call yourself American citizens, would you not? I think so. Still awake, just checking on you. Um, I, I used to work um, a lot with, uh, with French colleagues, as many of you know, and they, they, but they would joke with me, they would tease me, they would say, we are citizens of the Republic, and you are a subject of the Queen. It's a kind of a put down, I suppose, I don't know. Um, they didn't mean anything much by it. I, I don't think there's really any practical difference in the way that governments govern us here on this earth, um, certainly between France and England. But they always, uh, they, they always thought it was funny that, uh, that British were called British subjects. When it comes to the King of Kings, I'm going to say right now, I'm happy to be a subject. Um, perhaps we can say citizens are free and subjects are, well, subject. But, but I'm happy to be a subject of the King of Kings. So as, as a subject of the King of Kings, we have a few expectations. The first thing I have is we worship and revere the King. Revere means have great respect for. We, we worship and revere, we have respect for the King. So if we're meeting an earthly king or queen, you're meeting one, how would you behave? For the Queen of England, you need to be very careful. I've never met the Queen of England, I'm quite safe. You must address her as Her Majesty the first time you address her. And then after that, you must call her Ma'am. Rhymes with, rhymes with jam. Ma'am. Right? You must not speak unless you are asked a question. You must not shake her hand unless she offers it. Okay? And you must, of course, be respectful and dress respectfully. This puts all of you out straight away. <laughs> no, I'm joking. It, it would be fine. In fact, uh, the, 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 uh, the royal family in England have become a lot less rule-based than they used to be, so this is uh, only kind of partly true now. But as a... As you're meeting an earthly king or queen, somebody with that position, you would be very conscious, wouldn't you? So, how are we when we come before the king of kings? In prayer. I think we often blabber, like we are the king and he needs to do the listening. I read uh, purposefully earlier the uh, preamble before Jesus, that Jesus spoke before the Lord's Prayer when he says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling 
like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So when will we be quiet in the presence of the king? Why do we persist in telling him what he already knows, rather than recognizing that he is king? And listening. Something I think we should practice more is listening in prayer. Worship should start there too, shouldn't it? We, we remove ourselves from the bustle of everyday life and recognize the king in our midst. Be still before the king and acknowledge and worship him and stop telling God what he needs to do or what he needs to know because he knows that. He is king of kings. So we must recognize the king and worship and revere him. Secondly, we must submit to his rule and reign because that is his kingdom. We've spoken a lot about that already. We are obligations in being in a kingdom. They flow from, they flow naturally, I think, once we recognize who really is king. He is king, Jesus, king of kings, creator, word of God. When we get that straight in, in our heads, then our obligations flow. We are not the king, he is. We gave up our kingship to our own lives, so we submit to him. And thirdly, we rely on his power to protect and empower us. Unlike human kings who use their subjects to secure power, Jesus uses his power to secure and empower those who are his. Let me go around that a bit slower. Kings stand on what? On their kingdom. That's the way earthly kings typically work. The more subjects they have, then the stronger they are. The more people they can put into their armies that they, they stand on those people. That gives them their position. That is not Jesus, is it? That is not Jesus. He is the opposite. He sacrificed himself to make us strong. He is the name above every name already, and he empowers us to be his people born and empowered by his Holy Spirit. His kingdom is built on humility and on sacrifice. So it's upside down. He's not going to leave us behind on the battlefield so we can go away and seek a greater glory. He's the opposite. He will empower us to do his work and protect us from the enemy. And if we believe this, then it helps us, doesn't it, to lay down our own kingdoms and to put those aside and to be part of this kingdom, this glorious kingdom that Jesus has. And that kingdom is eternal as well. Everything else will end. The kingdom of God is forever. And lastly, one more, we value his kingdom as subjects of the king of kings. We value his kingdom as precious 
And we seek it everywhere and with everyone. That's our prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Lord, show me. Show me where you are, what you are doing, where you are moving. Show me what's next. Let me see people as you see people. Let me see your kingdom growing. Let me be part of that. Because it's precious. I didn't read them earlier because we're, we, have, we don't have time to look at all of the parables of the, of the kingdom, but there's the one about the pearl of great price. There's the one about the, the jewel. You can read them later in, in Matthew 13. It's precious. So we seek it everywhere and with everyone. And our prayer is, Thy kingdom come. So let's draw to a close. This morning, if, if you've not found the King of Kings, if you're not part of his kingdom, then to you I say, don't stay on the fringe and look in. Today, make your decision to follow the King of Kings and not continue in your own way. Acknowledge the King of Kings as John did. Accept Jesus as Lord, your Lord and Savior, and get introduced to the joy of the kingdom. So we're going to pray shortly, and, and when we pray, I hope that uh, you'll pray with me if you're in that situation to come to the King of Kings. Now, for many of us this week, we're going to be starting the, to study the Gospel Primer. Have you got your books yet? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, a lot of you haven't, because I've got a whole pile of books at home I'm trying to give away yet. We're starting the Gospel Primer, and it's really a series that can move us into action um, and getting a fuller grasp of what God is doing around us and with us. So let's expect the King of Kings to use it to expand his kingdom in our midst as we go forwards. And he is King of Kings, doubly King of Kings, with ultimate authority and power over all creation, and we worship him. So let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we are quiet before you because you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are nothing before you. We recognize you and acknowledge you, Lord, as king. You are king. Jesus is king. Lord, we ask that you'd continue to come and inhabit your people and build your kingdom. We pray as you asked us to, your kingdom come. And we worship you this morning. And let's pray with, uh, with, uh, together with those that have not acknowledged the King of Kings and responded to his call. Lord, we acknowledge you as King. Forgive our rebellion. Forgive my rebellion. Fill us, fill me with your Holy Spirit and lead us to new life in your kingdom. We commit ourselves, Lord, to your reign. We submit to you 
and to rely on you. And we ask you for more, Lord. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Amen. Amen.